your genetics is uh, not your destiny. It's just basically showing uh, the card that you have right now and you can uh, play the card and, uh, and uh, fight it. Everyone, welcome back to Longevity by Design. I'm your host, Ashley Reaver. This episode is an Ask Me Anything between Gil and I. As a registered dietitian, I'm asked about cholesterol all the time. In this episode, I explain how fiber impacts our blood cholesterol, what markers really matter for lipids, how often you should be checking your markers, and how much your diet really impacts those levels. I then ask Gil questions about physiological markers. He goes into detail about why VO2 max is a crucial marker to track as you age. He also talks about sleep, the importance of maintaining muscle strength as you age, and much, much more. Finally, Gil answered questions from Inside Tracker users about NMR, NAD analogs, and resveratrol that he gets asked on a daily basis. This episode was really fun to record, and I hope we answered some of your questions. Thank you for your continued support, and don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver. Welcome back to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Today's episode is an Ask Me Anything between Gil and I. We've gathered questions from listeners spanning different topics, including cholesterol, aging, and health span, and we're excited to debate the answers together. Welcome to today's episode. Thank you, Ashley. It's a real pleasure. And uh, this is our first uh, AMA, so I'm very excited about that. And I hope that uh, our listener will be excited as well. So I would like to start uh, with a question to you. And maybe we'll start with uh, talking about uh, cholesterol and diet. And the question is, uh, if you can explain the relationship between uh, dietary uh, cholesterol intake and the level of the blood uh, cholesterol. Absolutely. Um, this one, I feel like we get inundated with information in the media every five years or so. It comes back up that you shouldn't be eating eggs. Um, but we actually know that your dietary intake of cholesterol doesn't have that much of an impact on your blood levels of cholesterol. Um, so dietary cholesterol is something that we can only find in animal products because cholesterol is something that all animals are hardwired to make. Um, and eggs, yes, are high in dietary cholesterol, as are some um, types of shellfish like shrimp. And uh, before, the belief was that eating foods that were really high in dietary cholesterol had a big impact on our body's cholesterol level as well. Um, and for some people, um, there may be a stronger relationship there. But for the majority of people, dietary cholesterol intake has a, a pretty small impact on our blood levels of cholesterol. Um, so avoiding eggs outright just because they have dietary cholesterol in them isn't necessarily something that's recommended anymore. Um, eggs aren't necessarily a free food. They still have another nutrient in there that can impact cholesterol levels. But 
Um, dietary cholesterol, when we eat it, it gets broken down and absorbed like all sorts of other fats that we eat. And then our body gets to decide what it wants to do with those building blocks. So we don't directly absorb cholesterol from our digestive tract and it ends up in our bloodstream. Um, our body produces most of our cholesterol. Okay, got it. So there, there is a follow-up question, and I'm sure that uh, I know what is the answer, but I will ask it anyway because uh, some of our listeners asked that. So what percentage of the cholesterol in our uh, blood is made by our body versus the one that uh, is taken from food? So it's about an 80-20 split. Um, our body makes about 80% of the cholesterol that's there kind of regardless of what we eat. And about 20% is something that can be influenced by our dietary intake. Importantly, I'll say that those are averages. You know, for some people, perhaps they um, are much more sensitive to certain nutrients or their diet is really lacking in other nutrients. Um, and maybe their cholesterol levels are high because of those. And maybe they could see more than a 20% change. Um, but as an animal, humans have all of the machinery to be able to make cholesterol because we need it. It's something that's in every cell in our body. It's in our hormones. Um, it is needed for a digestive compound. Um, so since we need it, our body's able to produce it from lots of stuff. Um, basically, anything that contributes energy can be uh, produce cholesterol in the body, go into our endogenous cholesterol production. Um, so an 80-20 split, our genetics do have a big impact on that, um, but genetics are not 100% of it. And just because someone in your family has high cholesterol doesn't mean that your cholesterol is high genetically and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, that's a, a great uh, answer. And uh, by the way, I have a, a high cholesterol and I have also predisposition to high cholesterol based on my, and my genetics. So I uh, feel for everyone that uh, uh, struggle with this issue and it's uh, not an easy struggle and we know that uh, that can be show a predisposition to cardiovascular event in the future so it's not a joke and uh, people should uh, take care of it and uh, treat it uh, seriously and uh, uh, the next question is uh, maybe a follow-up for that so for someone who who has uh, a high cholesterol how often uh, should he or she be testing their uh, blood level and uh, which of the biomarkers are the best biomarkers for testing it? Um, so, I mean, for us at Inside Tracker, we always like to say knowledge is power. Um, you can make significant changes to your cholesterol levels in just three months. And that's something that I would strongly encourage if you're actively making changes to your lifestyle or the types of foods that you're including or maybe including not quite as often. Getting some feedback that your body and your blood levels in particular are responding to those changes can be really, really beneficial. Um, for many people that are working on lowering their cholesterol, you know, maybe they get their blood work tested at the doctors and then maybe they're excited about those changes for a month or so. And then for the next 10 and a half months, they don't really think about it again. And then two weeks before their appointment, they realize, you know, shoot, I was supposed to be working on my cholesterol levels. I'm going to get my blood retested. I hope that they've changed. Um, so testing every three months, again, can really help to make sure that the changes or the um, interventions you have selected are working. You can see if you're doing enough, maybe you need to switch something. Um, but they also do provide you that good feedback to keep going um, if you haven't necessarily moved the needle as much as you'd like. 
you can start to change thing and, things. And again, it keeps it kind of front of mind so that it's not something you only think about every year, two weeks before you go to the doctors. Um, and biomarkers to really think about. Um, LDL cholesterol is certainly an important one. That one we know, uh, you know, we have the most research behind as being associated with the incidence of cardiovascular disease. Um, getting your ApoB checked is also important. Um, so ApoB is something that we can find on those atherogenic um, lipids. So that includes LDL, but it also includes other types of lipoproteins. Um, so precursors to LDL like I IDL and VLDL, as well as lipoprotein A, which is something that is um, very strongly linked to your genetics and not something that can be manipulated with lifestyle factors. Um, your triglyceride levels, so the amount of circulating fatty acids or fats that we have in our blood, um, and HDL is also a great one. Um, what you didn't hear there is total cholesterol. And while that's an okay number to know, it, total cholesterol doesn't really tell us the story of what's happening. Someone could have very high LDL cholesterol, which is that potentially atherogenic type of lipoprotein, and really low HDL, which is the more protective form um, of lipoprotein. And they could have a normal total cholesterol number, but we know that that ratio is not necessarily um, what we want. Even though it's below 200, it doesn't mean that it's, uh, that it's quote unquote healthy. Um, so LDLC, um, ApoB, and triglycerides, as well as HDL are the ones really to look for. A comment about what you said about uh, do it every uh, quarter because then... Uh, it's a better chance that you work on, uh, on it uh, uh, in the gap between the tests. So I, I see the same as the going to the hygienist at uh, the dentist. And uh, she explained to you and show you how to floss and you're doing it for, <laughs> uh, I don't know, a few days. And then uh, you forget about it. And then you go again after a year and you're surprised that uh, your uh, gums are not in the condition that they're supposed to be. So I uh, also applied it not only for insert tracker, but also for the hygienist. And I'm going every quarter just because I know that I'm not uh, <laughs> as So it, it's, it's a way, uh, and, and I agree with you, it's, it's a way for you to force yourself to do a better job by having a feedback loop. So the, the blood test is a feedback loop, like the response for the hygienist and say, hey, you are not doing a good job, try to do it better. So it's... Yeah. Um, a very good uh, a way to have the feedback and the uh, more the merrier. Unfortunately, we cannot uh, uh, do a blood test. Or we can, but it's very hard and uh, tedious to test every day. And I'm not sure that you'll get a lot of value from that. But uh, if you can do every quarter, that uh, that will be amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's um, funny if you Google how to lower cholesterol. The first thing that comes up is quickly, and I think that really speaks to the fact that you know individuals or people forget that they're supposed to be working on that, and that's like rats i've got to have this done in two weeks or else um yeah. so the quickly part is definitely something to switch you can do a slow drip over an entire year or you're not going to be very effective if you just focus on it the two weeks before your doctors visit. it yeah yeah and the, it's uh, i think that it's uh, the quickly that you, uh, the, you mentioned it's a uh, it's very good point that there is no a uh, quick and dirty there is no a uh, silver bullet uh if you want to take uh, care of the most important machine that you have, work on it hard and work, uh, work on it for the long haul. It's not, uh, and, and it's, it's, it is okay, by the way, uh, we are recording it on Friday, so we are uh, before the weekend. It's okay once a week to have a, a party day and uh, don't do exactly and, uh, uh, what you're supposed to do and then the other six days to do it. 
Uh, we are humans and uh, we want to have fun and we want to enjoy, but uh, try it at least in the majority of your time to do what you are supposed to do. And then you, you'll be a, a 90% good. And uh, most of us are not there. So try to be as good as you can. Uh, so an- another uh, question that uh, our audience asks is uh, about what, what would you wish that uh, our audience will know or understand about cholesterol that they don't? I think the thing that I hear the most frequently that um, I would say most impactful just because it can stop people from even trying or starting to work on their cholesterol is the notion of um, having a family history means that there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, as a dietitian, you know, I've also talked and worked with a lot of people about um, helping them lower their cholesterol levels. And often, you know, they're told that, you know, on your health form, you fill out, do you have any conditions? And if your dad or mom has high cholesterol, it's something that you would record there, um, or maybe their siblings. And importantly, I really just like to stress that while we know 80%, roughly 80% of cholesterol production is just based on the machinery that you inherited in your body, that other 20% can still have a really big impact. And we inherit so much more than just our genes from our family, um, you know, our genetic makeup. We also inherit foods that we incorporate all the time foods that we think are weird um, and maybe don't put into our diet that often, maybe how we celebrate things, how we de-stress, how we move our bodies. So that 20% actually has a really, really big impact. Um, and again, I just hear from so many people that you know their brother or their dad had high cholesterol and there's nothing that they can do about it or sister or mom, um, it impacts men and women equally. Um, and I think that that's just something that's really rooted in just recognizing that you know, you might have inherited the same lifestyle as other members of your family, that it makes a lot of sense if you eat the same way as your siblings, that they would have very similar conditions that could be caused by diet. Um, and, you know, on that note, too, is even if you do eat somewhat different from your family, the traditional diets in the United States, um, even these popular fad diets still have too much of some nutrients and not enough of others. So the, you know, standard American diet, the two nutrients that can really have the biggest role in um, cholesterol would be saturated fat intake for those that have high cholesterol and soluble fiber. Traditional American diet, really high in saturated fat, very low in fiber, including this soluble fiber. Keto diet, very high in saturated fat, very low in soluble fiber, low carb, same thing. Paleo diet, same thing. Um, so even individuals that, you know, maybe try and eat quote unquote clean, whatever that definition is, you can still have high cholesterol if those two nutrients aren't in the right, um, in the right ratio. Um, so again, not necessarily thinking that having a family history because other members of your family have high cholesterol doesn't mean that there's necessarily nothing you can do. So it's not worth trying. Yeah. And uh, that, that was a very good point uh, related to Genetics is only 20%. Actually, in most cases, it's even less than that. For example, Apple B, that it's a biomarker that we had at the, a few weeks ago. And when we looked at that, when uh, our scientists looked into that and they uh, tried to understand what is the genetics in the level of, uh, what is the effect of genetics on the level of Apple B? And the effect of genetics on Apple B is pretty high. It's only 13.5%. Meaning that 86.5% is not genetics, meaning that you have a lot of 
work that you can do and, uh, and change it. And that's uh, Apple B that is uh, pretty genetics. So, so I really like the analogy of uh, uh, going to Las Vegas and playing with a card. The genetics are the card that you receive. How you play the card is your lifestyle. So yes, some of us uh, got a bad card. I got a bad card for uh, cholesterol. That's, <laughs> I cannot do anything about it, but I can do a lot about how I am playing the cards. And uh, that's what we should uh, do. Try to focus on the half full of the cup and not the half empty. Yeah, I got a bad card for uh, cholesterol. I can uh, stay at home and, uh, and whine about that, or I can uh, work hard and try to uh, fight my uh, genetic or my potential. And I think that that's uh, really the difference between uh, people that are uh, going into prevention and trying to improve their life and uh, beat their hearts versus someone say, oh, yeah, that's my genetics. Uh, okay, I cannot do anything. And that's the big difference between the people that live until the 70s versus the 90s and 100. Those yeah. are the people that, those are the pioneers that are uh, fighting and trying and uh, trying to biohack and trying to find the best way. Uh, how can we work the system in a way that, uh, yeah, I, I haven't got the best scouts, but I, I will do the best with those scouts. Yeah, and focusing on the things that you can control. You're never going to be able to change your genetics, and you should run very far away from anyone that says you can do that. But just yeah. because you can't control your genetics doesn't mean that you should ignore this long list of these other things that we know have a big impact on not just cholesterol, but a lot of other um, you know, risk factors for developing disease or things that can influence your overall longevity too. Don't spend your time having anxiety about the things that you can't do anything about. Invest that effort and energy instead into all of those things that you can move the needle on and are solely within yeah. your control. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in this line, uh, another question that we receive is about, are there a specific food that are uh, very eff uh, effective in uh, uh, reducing the level of uh, ApoB or uh, LDL in the blood? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, a good point about reducing ApoB levels. Um, recommendations to do that are the same recommendations that you'd have to lower LDL cholesterol levels because the majority of ApoB that most people have um, is on LDL. So if you're going to lower your LDL levels, that's also going to bring those ApoB levels down. Um, so there's kind of two nutrition things really to think about. One can help um, increase utilization of cholesterol is kind of how I like to think about it. And the other one can just help to reduce the amount that sticks around in your bloodstream. Um, so if we think about saturated fats, which are fats that are solid at room temperature for people that have high levels of cholesterol, um, you know, we know that eating a diet that has more saturated fat in it can downregulate the LDL receptors on your liver that help to pull that LDL out of your bloodstream. So it can stick around in your bloodstream for longer, which means that those levels are going to be higher. Um, so if you're someone that has high cholesterol, and I say that because not everyone has kind of is wired to have that down regulation of those LDL receptors based on saturated fat. But if your cholesterol levels are high, there's probably a pretty good likelihood that saturated fat is something that's impacting you. Um, and, you know, we hear all the time I eat the same diet as my spouse, but they don't have that issue. And it's okay that you and your spouse are genetically different. That's a good thing. If your spouse have the same genetics as you, we'd have lots of other problems that we have to talk about. Um, so watching your saturated fat intake in the U S the primary way that we overeat saturated fat is just through animal proteins or other animal products. 
Um, so not just meat, but that also goes into butter. Um, half and half in your coffee or heavy cream is so popular at the moment, um, maybe from the keto wave. Um, ice cream, those types of things are where we get most of our saturated fat. But for plants, we have coconut oil that contributes actually more saturated fat than butter. Um, per serving, palm oil is something we find a lot in more packaged or processed foods because it's um, economically cheap. Um, and then cocoa butter is another one that um, tends to be very high in saturated fat. So watching your intake and monitoring that, you're never going to get to zero if you're watching your saturated fat. We've got it saturated fat in all sorts of foods, including plant foods. Um, but managing, making sure that you're not having too much and really thinking about it as a seven-day average. If you've got steak and ice cream one day, maybe try and bring it down as low as you can the subsequent days to bring that moving average back down. Um, the other thing that's really, really important is your soluble fiber intake. And um, soluble fiber there's uh, is one of two types of fiber. Soluble fiber swells when it comes into contact with water. So you, a great visualization for that is thinking about if you put beans or oats or chia seeds in water in the refrigerator overnight, they expand when you go back in the morning. That's because they've absorbed that water. The other type is insoluble fiber. Insoluble fiber isn't impacted by water. It doesn't dissolve in water or absorb it. Um, so visualizing that, you know, broccoli, carrots, and celery in a cup of water overnight still look like broccoli, celery, and carrots the next morning. That's because that type of fiber is not something that's impacted by water. Um, and the soluble fiber piece is what's so key for helping your body lower those APOB levels and LDL cholesterol levels. Um, how fiber works, I've heard someone say, I don't understand how fiber gets into your blood and pulls that cholesterol out. Um, but one of the things that our body produces cholesterol for, what it uses it for is to make a digestive compound called bile. And we need bile to be able to break fats down into a small enough form that they can be absorbed. And bile is produced um, utilizing cholesterol. So when we eat a diet that's really high in this soluble fiber, we trap that bile and transport it out of the body. Since we need bile to be able to digest fats, our body pulls on those cholesterol stores in order to replace it. But some of the other things that we do with cholesterol, like uh, you know, structural integrity of our cells or being able to produce more vitamin D or more sex hormones, we can't necessarily think, I want my cells to be more structurally sound. Um, so we don't get to dictate really how much of our cholesterol level goes into those processes. But eating soluble fiber is 100% something that you can do that's going to impact how much of that cholesterol your body's utilizing. Because as you eat it and it binds to that bile, transports it out, we have to produce more of that. So we're going to pull on those uh, cholesterol stores in order to replace them. Uh, long way of saying saturated fat, trying to monitor it um, from animal sources, as well as those three plants of cocoa, palm, and coconut. And then best sources of, of uh, soluble fiber, oats and barley are the two best. They have um, a type of soluble fiber called beta-glucan, beta um, which is just like the stickiest, but you can also find it in lots of nuts and seeds, beans, other whole grains, um, artichokes are a good source. Um, anything that you think could swell, if you visualize that probably is a pretty good source of soluble fiber. Also berries, apples, and oranges are good sources of it too. So, so Ashley, what is the, the effect, if at all, of a, a non-unsoluble fiber? What, what, uh, what is it doing, if at all, for uh, uh, LDL or cholesterol uh, 
decrease? Not really anything. That doesn't mean you shouldn't eat fruits or vegetables. Um, but that type of fiber is, you know, it's great for filling you up. Um, maybe has an impact on how quickly your body is able to um, digest or absorb, you know, carbohydrates. So it could impact glucose in your body. Definitely plays a role in moving foods through your digestive tract. But that insoluble fiber really doesn't play too much of a role um, directly in, in lowering LDL levels. Um, but most, you know, plants might have some combination of both of those. So beans are a good example. It's a good source of insoluble as well as soluble. Um, so eating beans is going to have, you know, the benefit of lowering the LDL level, even though that insoluble fiber and it didn't have a big impact. And I think this is why, you know, a lot of people that are low carb or, you know, follow maybe a more paleo style of eating, they eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. Um, but we don't really find a ton of soluble fiber or enough soluble fiber just in fruits and vegetables. You really want to pull in those grains where we find the most of them uh, or most soluble fiber, beans where we find a lot, and then specifically some of those nuts and seeds too. And if, uh, as you said, some, someone that on paleo diet, can he supplement with soluble fiber? And if yes, what, uh, what are the kind of supplements that you can use for a soluble fiber? fiber yeah, you, you definitely can. I'd say the uh, most common supplement is called psyllium husk, P-S-Y-L-L-I-U-M. Um, I will say, though, that's a nasty supplement. If you mix it with water, you're supposed to mix it with eight ounces of water and take it immediately. Um, if you don't, it basically turns into cement, which is what happens in our body. Um, you know, we kind of want that sticky fibrous matrix to trap that bile. Um, but you can, you know, I, there are people that mix it with oatmeal. Um, you could mix it kind of in all sorts of things. Just know it's going to really absorb water and make it um, pretty thick. Um, Metamucil is, you know, probably the most well-known fiber supplement that's out there. And psyllium husk is the type of fiber that Metamucil is made with. Um, and usually fiber supplements, they have about five grams of fiber per supplement. Um, but it's not typically enough, you know, for women, our fiber goal is 25 grams for men. It's 38 grams. I would not recommend someone take seven servings of a fiber supplement. That's going to be uncomfortable for them. Uncomfortable for everyone, probably within like a five mile radius. Um, but you should really be trying to get a lot of this from your diet as well. You certainly can, again, supplement those extra five grams, but you don't want all of your fiber or soluble fiber coming from those supplements. Yeah, I remember that I, I uh, consumed those supplements and I felt like uh, with not enough water and I <laughs> felt that I have a cement in my digestive tract and it, was, it wasn't comfortable, uh, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so for, be, be careful know, with that. Yeah, older individuals that have problems swallowing, they're not recommended for because if you don't drink it with enough water, it really can become very difficult to swallow and it's a choking hazard too. Yeah. Okay, so uh, maybe the last uh, question to you, maybe we'll have more, but uh, at least the last that I'm thinking right now is what are the myths that uh, you heard about uh, in the social media about uh, cholesterol and uh, what, are, what is the most crazy, crazy <laughs> information that you have seen there about cholesterol um i feel like maybe the most maybe not crazy but concerning thing i see is there's just so many people saying that doesn't matter and we do know that elevated levels of ldl and apoB in particular being even more specific is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular um, disease and incidents like heart attack 
and stroke. Um, so that always really concerns me when I see that. Certainly your cholesterol is kind of one piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, usually your doctor would also be looking at if you have high blood pressure, if you smoke, if you have diabetes, if you have a lot of excess body fat, those are all things that increase the potential danger of having high cholesterol. Um, but that one always really bugs me because it is a lot of people that maybe for them, their cholesterol might not be the most, um, pressing health issue. But if you look at kind of the landscape of people in the United States, one in 10 people have diabetes, um, you know, over 30 or 40% of the U.S. adult population at this point does have excess body fat. I believe the number is a third has hypertension. Um, I don't know where smoking is now. I hope it's pretty low, but, um, yeah, that, that information to me is just really dangerous to put out there. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, uh, I think that it's a, it's a good lesson for our audience. Don't, uh, take, a. a health or wellness advice from social, social media. That's really dangerous. Find uh, an organization that you trust and you believe and uh, be careful from all of those gurus. I remember I, I, I've seen it. Uh, I spoke with a lot of people that told me running is bad. And I said, why it's, it's bad? I, said, oh, I know one uh, person that ran <laughs> and got a cardiovascular event and died. I said, yeah, it's a one in uh, five million. And yeah, he, he had a, a most likely a bad gene. So you cannot uh, take this example and come and say that running is bad. It's the same time coming saying uh, fiber is bad or uh, fat is bad or car car uh, carbohydrate is bad. Nothing is bad. It's all about the the mix and the concentration and the balance between them. Um, so really be careful about uh, social media and uh, listen to the right people and uh, don't uh, don't take an advice from social media. That can uh, kill you. Yeah. And no, nothing exists like in extremes or absolutes. So I feel like a good way of navigating that is if someone says you always have to do this or you can't do this at all, or this is the one thing that you have to focus on. It's not, um, you know, as, as you just said, I think that's nothing is always good or always bad. And, you know, other things I think that come up a lot is that I was told I can't eat fruit or I can't eat eggs. I can't eat dairy. I can't eat shellfish. None of those are true. It's all about how those things kind of like fit in with everything else that you're doing. Um, you know, for me, if I was trying to watch my saturated fat intake, cutting out half and half or heavy cream from my coffee might be an easy decision for me to make. But I've worked with someone before that said she'd rather be a vegan than have to drink her one daily cup of coffee without half, half in it, um, which is great. We all get to make those decisions. Um, so while it maybe wasn't a decision that would be most important for me, it, it might be for someone else. <laughs> yeah yeah and it's uh, and uh, i think that's a good point it's all about personalization the best way to know is to test so if yep. you are uh, consuming a lot of uh, meat and your cholesterol is good and uh, other markers are good that's fine it's uh, it sounds like it's good for you but if you see that uh, the cholesterol uh, is starting to to get higher or any other marker or apob let's say you should you should be careful so Basically, monitor and uh, and test and be sure that uh, your machine is uh, as optimized as possible, and if not, uh, intervene and make it better. Yeah, I think again, importantly, just because one person eats a lot of red meat and their cholesterol is perfect, doesn't necessarily mean that everything that we know about people that are predisposed predisposed to elevated cholesterol, like it doesn't mean that those people should also go wild on red meat too. 
and we still know that you know intake of high intake of saturated fat is something that has an impact on some people just because it's not you doesn't mean that everyone else is wrong <laughs> um awesome okay well i'm gonna flip and pepper gill with some questions now um so sticking around on cardiovascular fitness what is the best physio marker physiological biomarker for cardiovascular health yeah that's a very good question and uh, it's something that i think becoming more and more uh, interesting for the uh, for all of us because uh, uh, we see more and more that uh, exercise and cardiovascular uh, fitness specifically is uh, is very important for us to live better longer and it's something that uh, it's good for us to start working on as early as possible and uh, continue to maintain. Um, so to answer specifically for you, uh, to your uh, question, uh, the answer is a uh, uh, VO2max. And uh, a VO2max is basically the maximal oxygen consumption uh, that uh, you can uh, have uh, within a, a minute. And so it's measuring a milliliter of oxygen consumed in one minute uh, divided by your uh, body weight in a kilogram. And uh, it's not easy to measure. So a lot of uh, physiological markers or, or fitness trackers are uh, providing this uh, marker. I can say Apple Watch is one of them. Garmin is another one. And uh, you can see a lot of other. And uh, I think that it's good to know that from those devices, but it's really inaccurate. I can give you my own example. Uh, when I look at the Apple Watch, my level is around 33. While when I went to a lab, and the best way to do it is uh, if you want to really measure it, you need to go to a specific lab and uh, basically run on the treadmill with a uh, a mask, a, a ventilation mask on your uh, nose and mouth, and basically uh, run faster and faster and faster until you get uh, exhausted. And then uh, there is some algorithm that calculates your uh, VO2 max. I found that my VO2 max is around uh, 43, while uh, my VO2 max in Apple Watch was 33. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a very big difference. So, but I still think that it's good to see the and have the level of your view to max uh, every day via Apple Watch or Garmin or other, because that's give you a reference about how your body is your view to max is going higher or lower. And you always need to strive to, to get it higher because the higher it is, it's better. So you can't now, necessarily you trust the number, but you can trust the change. The, the trend, yeah. You can yeah. Tr uh, trust the trend. And also go to those labs. There are uh, plenty of labs like that. I think that I spent maybe $100 on that. And I'm planning to do it, I don't know, uh, once a, a year or so just to, to continue to see the accuracy. But uh, between that, I think that uh, something like Apple Watch that I'm using, it's uh, good enough. Just to give you a reference, the, the highest VO2 max ever that I know about is uh, for a cyclist that... Uh, basically had a VO2 max of 97.5, which is uh, really crazy. Well, Again, as I said, mine is uh, a 43. Uh, there are also a lot of tables, and uh, maybe we can uh, have those tables in the show notes that basically show uh, the VO2 max uh, of uh, males and females and basically show uh, the 5%, the 10%, uh, and so on, and the 95%. So I'm uh, uh, in the range of uh, 50 to 59, so I'll discuss that. So the fifth percent for someone in my age is uh, around 21. 
while the 95% is 50.7 and the 90% is a, a 50, a 45.6. So I'm very close to the 90%, which uh, make me very happy. That say that I'm a, a pretty good and I'm a, I know that I'm a working on that. I'm cycling and I'm a, a mountain biking and I'm a, a walking a lot. So, uh, uh, that's good and that can help me to improve it. What is also interesting, and I'm still uh, stuck with, uh, with males, I, I'll uh, switch to women in a, in a second. Uh, it's uh, uh, with age, uh, the view to marks uh, on average decrease significantly. So, for example, if we stay with males, a male in the age of 20 to 29, the 95% is around 66 while 30 to 39 is 59, while 40 to 49 is 55, while 50 to 59 is 50, while 60 to 69 is 43, and then 70 to 79 is uh, 40. And if you look at the 5 percentile, if you are 70 to 79, on average is only 16. So basically, we see a, a significant drop of the level of the view to max. And uh, a a, why the view to max is so important? Because view to max showing what is your aerobic capacity? So maybe at the age of 20, you want to run marathon, but uh, maybe at the age of 50, you just want to do some hike. And in the, I don't know, in the age of uh, 60 to 69, you want to walk from your uh, bedroom to the bathroom uh, to do what you need to do. <laughs> and in order to do that, you need to, uh, to have aerobic capacity. And if you don't have aerobic capacity, it will be hard for you to do that. And all of us, again, I assume everyone that listened to this podcast would like to live better longer. So we want to delay the decrease of the VO2 max as much as we can. And uh, hopefully it was uh, clear. Now, if we are uh, uh, jumping to women, uh, to the table of women, so women on average have a bit lower uh, VO2 max. We know that uh, if you look at a marathon runner, for example, the males are running, I think that the males are close to, as much as I remember, to 2.2 two hours, two minutes. And uh, I think that uh, a week ago, uh, a woman broke the uh, marathon record in uh, in Berlin. And I think that if I recall correctly, she ran something like 210. So yeah. there, there is always a bit of difference between uh, males and females. Males, they usually have a higher view to max on average than uh, women. And for example, the 95 percentile of a male uh, at the age of 20 to 29 is 66, while for uh, women is uh, only 56. So a male have a higher view to marks for women, but the decline is similar. Women also have a, a decline in view to marks. And what we need to do, all of us, again, people that want to live better longer, is try to fight it. Exactly like what we discussed about the uh, LDL cholesterol and APOB, try to fight it and try to, uh, I'm not excited that I'm in the 90 percentile of uh, 50 to 59. I want to be in the 90 percentile of 40 to 49. Why not? Try to give yourself a, a challenge and try to be the best as you can. And hopefully you will be able to live to 100 and still climb mountain at that age. So, so that's a, about a, a view to Max. Hopefully it was a, a clear. I, I was trying to make it as a, simple as possible. Yeah, I think something that's so cool about VO2 Max is it, like, you know, cross training. As Gil said, he is walking, he's running, he's biking. All of those things have an influence on your VO2 max. And it's, you know, just as if you were lifting weights, as you can see your max squats go up, it's cool to be able to see your VO2 max go up too. And literally how well your body is able to utilize, absorb or breathe in oxygen, but really utilize oxygen to make energy. 
for those endurance events. Um, I know I'm a dietitian, but I feel like exercise is nothing can change your muscle cells like exercise. And that's where so much of our metabolism happens. This is a cool metric that really owns in on that. Um, but what are some other reasons that VO2 max is so important? Are there biomarkers that we know of that are correlated with maybe having higher levels of VO2 max or lower VO2 max being correlated with some markers? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And uh, we are fortunate at the uh, InstaTracker that we have a database of uh, around 100,000 uh, humans. So we can uh, start uh, slicing and dicing it. And we have a lot of them have a VO2 max uh, uh, level. So we try to look and see what is the correlation between VO2 max and physiological marker and also blood biomarkers. So if uh, uh, we'll start with a physiological marker, VO2 max is uh, strongly correlated with, with a, a resting heart rate, and it's negatively correlated. And it makes sense because when your resting heart rate is low, your uh, heart is basically when you are at uh, rest, is uh, pumping less, and that's allowing him to, to rest more, but it's allowing him to pump more. So basically, lower uh, resting heart rate is uh, correlated uh, with, negatively correlated with uh, VO2 max. Also, at the time that you are awake at sleep, so basically, you have a better view to max, you're less awake during sleep. You sleep better, mm. which is also uh, pretty good. But it's positively correlated with a, a step count. Again, it's not a rocket science. When you walk more, you're, you improve your view to max, and we might discuss it later. Also, activity in net. Net is a metabolic equivalent. So basically, you're more active. You have a higher view to max. The sleep duration, so uh, you have a higher uh, view to max. There is a correlation with a, a longer uh, sleep time. And also REM and, and deep sleep. So basically, all the uh, things that are positive in the physio side are positively regulated, uh, correlated with view to max, while all the things that are uh, should be lower are negatively regulated. So that's why we see it as a, a master regulator of uh, physiological markers. But what is uh, really uh, exciting and something that I wasn't uh, uh, expecting is that it's correlated uh, uh, very strongly with uh, metabolic-related blood biomarkers. So it's never negatively correlated with uh, ApoB, cholesterol, LDL, triglycerin. Ashley, you discussed it for the last uh, uh, half an hour, and now we're saying, hey, you want to improve them, improve your view to max, and you will be okay. Uh, but also uh, negatively correlated with uh, uh, a fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1c, HSCRP, which is a marker on inflammation, and white blood cells that, again, a marker on inflammation. So basically, if you want to uh, see a, a, a correlation between VO2 max and uh, those markers, every, if you are improving your VO2 max, there is a correlation with decreasing those markers. Again, I'm not saying that there is a cause and effect, but there is a strong correlation be, uh, between them. And a positively regulate uh, correlation with uh, HDL cholesterol, testosterone, and blood iron-related markers. So again, it's amazing that VO2 max is uh, correlated in the right way with so many physiomarkers and uh, uh, blood biomarkers, which it, it's, it's really amazing. I was uh, amazed when I, see, I have seen it. Yeah, that's amazing. Do we, it, it's not a new marker, but maybe it's a new marker that they're trying to find associations with other aspects of health like i'm curious if there's anything out there on sleep apnea and vo2 max because that would make a lot of sense um yeah. you know impacting sleep quality it's 
cool. No, absolutely. Ab- absolutely. Uh, I haven't researched it, but uh, I would say that it makes a lot of sense that uh, people with sleep apnea, if they can improve their view to max, they can improve their uh, uh, sleep quality. I would assume that it is, but again, I haven't researched it, so I cannot say 100%. As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. If someone does want to improve their VO2 max, uh, you know what what can we do to bring that number up into 90th or 95th percentile? Yeah, so again, I'm, I cannot uh, assure anyone uh, to increase it to 90 or 95 percent, but what I can I can assure you that if you will do those interventions, there is a good chance that you will improve it. And again, it's a uh, I I cannot run marathon in two hours, two minutes, even if uh, uh, a tracker will uh, support me 100% because I don't have the genetics for that, but I might be able to finish a marathon. So it's the same here. So uh, doing those interventions will help you to reach your potential and get to the best VO2 max that you can have. So there there are uh, several different interventions. One of them is uh, high-intensity interval training or HIIT. So doing those uh, uh, kind of exercise can uh, have been shown to improve uh, VO2 max. Also, low-intensity low uh, training like uh, running, biking, hiking, rowing, especially in a uh, zone two exercise. So basically, in a, a level that uh, you are not uh, running at your toe, but you are uh, running in a way that uh, you can run, let's say, for a few hours, and you can talk with someone. This is a way that they uh, can allow you to build your field uh, to max. One uh, uh, point that is important to know that uh, uh, someone that is uh, really couch potato, let's say, or beginner, it's much easier for him or her to improve uh, the view to max. But if you are uh, the Tour de France uh, cyclist and you want to improve your view to max, it will be harder for you because your view to max is better. It makes sense. It's like if you are uh, uh, close to your limit, uh, uh, you'll improve it uh, slightly. But if you are uh, doing everything wrong right now and you change it to the right, you have a better chance to improve it. And it's very similar uh, uh, looking at uh, all the cholesterol that we discussed before. It's much easier for someone that is uh, obese and uh, not exercising and uh, eating badly to improve his uh, uh, LDL cholesterol or upper B than someone that eats well and exercise well and sleep well and all of that. So it's the same here. Just uh, take into consideration that uh, if you are already good and you want to be very good, it's much harder than if you are mm. bad and you want to be okay. Yeah. And I think those, you know, and you also mentioned this above with step count being correlated with it is, yeah. you know, I, oftentimes people might think they don't have enough time to get in a quote unquote good workout. Any amount of time is helpful. If it's a 10-minute walk, it's still better than skipping it. 
um, especially for beginners. Um, you know, you don't have to go to the gym for an hour and a half and lift a lot of weights and get really sweaty to be able to impact this VO2 max necessarily. Uh, okay, what about sleep and um, its impact on some of those same physiological markers or blood biomarkers? Yeah, so in the same study, we also decided to look at the uh, sleep. So again, we have a data set of uh, 100,000 people. And uh, we decided to divide them to uh, four different groups. So the groups that sleep less than five hours, the group that sleep five to seven hours, the group that sleep the optimal time based on literature, seven to nine hours, and the group that sleep uh, nine hours or more, we suppose which uh, the literature show that it's too much. And uh, what we found that uh, uh, if we're going back to VO2max, the VO2max is optimal or highest when uh, in the subgroup that sleep between seven and nine hours. And then in the other uh, groups that uh, sleep either more or less, the VO2max on average is lower. So mm -hmm. again, suggesting that uh, sleeping seven to nine hours is the optimal amount of sleep for us. Uh, we also found uh, that uh, some of the blood biomarkers are also uh, are optimized or the, or the best uh, when uh, in the optimal sleep zone, again, between seven and nine hours. And that's, uh, for example, uh, LDL, HDL, and uh, some other that uh, uh, we looked at. So again, it's show, and uh, I'm sure that uh, a lot of you know, and uh, if you don't know, uh, you should know, that uh, you should not look lightly at sleep. Sleep is very important, and uh, you should uh, dedicate the right amount of time and the environment and the preparation. And uh, basically, for me, uh, the day is the preparation for sleep. When I'm exercising and when I'm uh, eating and uh, how what I'm doing at night and when I'm going to sleep and the temperature of the home. It's literally a science. How can you, how can you optimize your sleep? And uh, I just uh, explained to you how important is the sleep and uh, uh, if you really want to live better longer, you should uh, take a lot of consideration and try to optimize your sleep because it's a, a super, super important. Yeah, and something you talk about all the time is not sacrificing your sleep for other things. So, you know, if you're only going to get four hours of sleep, it might not be the best thing to wake up and run 10 miles. Getting an extra yeah. two hours of sleep on that day is probably a better thing for your overall health. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And the... Uh, I'm, a, I'm trying uh, to be like a switch watch in a way, to go to sleep between 10 to 10.30. And even, I know I have a social event and I'm running away and go to sleep. It's like uh, people are, my friend looking at me like a nerd, but uh, I'm fine with that. I think that uh, I don't, I really don't want to compromise my sleep. And definitely I'm not waking up at 5 a.m. to uh, sneak a run or sneak a, a, a cycling a, a, a activity. I, I prefer to sleep and then uh, if I if if I can't, I, I prefer to sleep and not exercise the same day than to cut my sleep because it's so important. How about other, um, a newer marker that may be new to the general population, but not new to individuals that probably are used to working at physical therapy or with elderly individuals, um, grip strength. So can you explain kind of what that is and how that correlates maybe to muscle strength overall and how that muscle strength and muscle mass is so important um, as we age. Yeah, so uh, it's uh, very interesting that the uh, grip strengths have been shown to correlate uh, uh, very closely to longevity. 
meaning people that have a, a lower grip strength tend to live shorter, and the people that have a stronger grip strength tend to live longer. We don't understand 100% why, but it makes a lot of sense that uh, grip strength is basically a marker of your uh, muscle tone. And if you have a stronger grip strength, most likely you will have a, a stronger uh, muscle or more muscle. And uh, as we know, muscle is very important. As you uh, mentioned before, muscle is a metabolic uh, organ that they uh, uh, use a lot of energy and uh, sometimes a lot of fat. And uh, also it's an organ that allows us to maintain uh, or protect our body from falls and uh, protect our bones. And if we are going one step further, high percentage of uh, the cause of death in uh, the United States is basically a fall that uh, uh, you break your hip. And then uh, if you are above the age of 65, you have uh, on average less than a year to live after mm-hmm. you break your bone or uh, your hip. And, uh, and the reason for that is that uh, most people that uh, break their hip uh, from the beginning, they don't have enough muscle tone. But also, when you uh, break the, the hip and you don't have uh, a lot of muscle or a lot of uh, strength, you have a less uh, chance to recover from that. And um, that can influence your uh, mood and influence uh, the way that you will fight it. And you really need to fight it when it's happened. Also, the uh, more muscle will allow you to be more balanced. So th- there are a lot of reasons why uh, we need more muscle also. You have more muscle, you have a better chance to uh, carry your grocery from the grocery shop to your house and to take your grandchild and uh, lift him uh, and, uh, I don't know, do a lot of activity by yourself at home. So there are a lot of reasons why a a muscle tone is uh, important. And uh, so grip strength is uh, something that uh, we recently added uh, to the insult tracker based on the 10 new uh, markers of uh, DNA markers that basically you can look at a a high number of single nucleotide polymorphism and come with a prediction whether you have a stronger or weaker uh, grip strength. And I can give you my example. My example is I realized that uh, actually I have a higher risk to lower grip strength based on the insert tracker DNA score. I decided that uh, I want to test it. And actually, all of you go to Amazon and buy something called Dynometer. And it's uh, actually cost like $20. And you can basically try to press it and, uh, and see what is your grip strength. And I found that really my grip strength is not amazing. And that's basically convinced me to spend more time on a, a strength activity than on endurance. Because as I told you before, my uh, view to max is a, a, a pretty good, but both are important. It's not like view to max alone won't bring you to 100 and won't bring you to either to run a marathon or to climb a mountain at the age of 100. You need both. So I realized based on that, that I should uh, exercise more. And uh, indeed, in the last uh, six months or so, I'm spending a lot of time in the gym, uh, pumping iron and lifting weight. And uh, I see that I, I build the muscle and I also seen that the uh, uh, my uh, grip strength improved. So again, it's going in the discussion that we had before. Uh, your genetics is uh, not your destiny. It's just basically showing uh, the card that you have right now and you can uh, play the card and, uh, and uh, fight it. So I think that uh, this is a good example that show 
you you can use a lot of data, and that's what Insta Tracker is doing: is bringing you data about your blood and data about your DNA and data about your physiology. We just discussed it with uh, VO2 max and the resting heart rate and so on. But then, if you synthesize it and get the right conclusion from that, and my conclusion was okay: go more to the gym and uh, lift more weight and uh, don't uh, spend too much time on uh, cycling, but uh, spend more time uh, in the uh, next to the free weight. That is the right conclusion for Gil, but for Ashley, it might be different. Ashley might mm-hmm. need to spend more time uh, on the treadmill. Um, so, uh, so I think that uh, this is uh, exactly a personalized uh, wellness plan or a personalized health plan. Uh, plan. Have all the information, synthesize it, or uh, ask someone like InstaTracker to synthesize it for you. And then based on that, come with the conclusion, stick with that, then test again. And maybe in uh, a few months, I will realize that uh, my strength is so strong that I should now uh, try to balance it instead of spending uh, five days a week in the uh, next to the weight. Maybe I should do less days there and uh, more days on the bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to that dynometer, is that what it's called? Dynometer? To give you yeah. objective measurement of that strength and just like you know, your VO2 max or how much you're lifting, whatever, it's a number that you can track to try and see a trend with. As opposed to like how you're feeling or how you think you're doing, it's nice to be able exactly. to have data points. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's unbiased. Nobody can say, mm-hmm. "Hey, it's a, I, I feel like I'm good today." No, you don't feel like the dynamometer telling you whether you are <laughs> good or not. No, you cannot argue with the dynamometer, and you cannot argue <laughs> with your LDL level. It is what it is. Yeah. How about any additional testing that you'd recommend um, for some of these health span optimizers um, in addition to blood work? Yeah, so so that's actually a question that we received from uh, some of our uh, listeners, and they, they they said six pack. If I can do six uh, tests, what should I do in order to uh, try to optimize myself and uh, be the best I can be at the age of 80, 90, or 100? So as I mentioned before, one new uh, tool that we just added to InstaTracker is the HealthSpan DNA score. So there are, uh, there are scores, I said, about... Uh, grip strengths, but also scores about uh, your uh, cognition, how uh, good will be your cognition at the older age, epigenetic age, basically whether your epigenetic will tell you that you are uh, older or younger than your age, also aging as a whole, whether uh, uh, you are uh, might be older or younger based on your uh, DNA, age of menopause for women, so basically we can predict when you left the menopause and the Earlier menopause means that they're uh, most likely a shorter life. Again, you can fight all of that, but that's what your genetics say. And uh, many more. And uh, if you want to learn more about that, uh, we recorded the, we recorded an episode about the husband DNS scores a couple of weeks ago. So uh, when this episode will be out, uh, I'm sure that that episode will be there and you can uh, spend an hour or so with uh, one of the most talented uh, scientists that we have, uh, Bartek, that uh, discussed it. Uh, very well. Another tool that I really like is the DEXA scan. And the DEXA scan is basically a low radiation scan that you spend literally two minutes on a sort of a bed that a, a machine scan you, but it's give you so much information. So it's a provide bone mineral density, which is a very important, especially to a, for a postmenopausal women because they tend to lose a, a bone. It's a provide the body fat percentage and also the localization of the fat. 
and also muscle uh, percentage and the localization of the muscle. And maybe the most importantly for me, or in my opinion, is the visceral fat, how much visceral fat you have, because the visceral fat is the fat that is the most dangerous for us, and we, we need to try to have uh, as little as possible. So again, DEXA scan is uh, something that uh, you can just uh, Google it, and uh, there are uh, hundreds of those around the country. Just go and do that test, have a baseline, and then I will do it every year or so. And uh, based on that, I, I can give you the example. I, I done it a few months ago, and I was surprised that my visceral fat is high. So I'm now trying and working hard to decrease as much as I can my visceral fat. The rest is okay, but the visceral fat is high. So I'm trying to fight it. So again, you receive an information and uh, you can act upon. Another one is we feel to max. We spent a lot of time on it today, so I won't uh, discuss it again, but that's an, an important data point. Another one is a calcium score. So basically, it's a, a, another scan that uh, you can do and it's look at your arteries and see whether you have some... Uh, area in the arteries that might be starting to be clogged. And if they are, you can uh, have some intervention. Some, inter some intervention can be drug, either can be if it's a very serious uh, stent. But there are a lot of interventions that you can do and prevent a, a stroke or cardiovascular event, which can be deadly. So that's definitely something that uh, I recommend. By the way, I haven't done it yet. I should do it, but uh, that's something on my list. I do we know in some Greeks. states it's as cheap as $50 to be able to go and get one. Sometimes insurance so covers no, it, sometimes they won't. So so that's uh, an, another good point. No excuse for anyone. Go and do it. Grip strengths, <laughs> we discussed it. And uh, again, $20 on Amazon. So <laughs> no, but everyone can uh, afford uh, a $20 test. And uh, I think that the sleep and sleep phase via the fitness tracker is a uh, a, a very important, we discussed the, how important is sleep. And if you measure it, you can uh, improve it. You cannot uh, manage what you don't measure. So measure the sleep phase via O-ring or a, a Fitbit or Garmin or even Apple Watch. Now you can uh, measure your uh, sleep uh, phases, uh, sleep stages. And that can uh, give you a lot of information and uh, allow you to optimize your sleep. Uh, since we integrate with a lot of these different sleep trackers, and is there one, if someone's going to make an investment that really wants to be able to investigate their sleep, unsponsored, just since we've worked with them, is there one of these trackers that, you know, tends to do a better job of that than others? Yeah, I, uh, I think that all of them are doing a good job. I haven't used Garmin because I'm not a triathlete or runner, so I, I cannot say anything about Garmin, but I think that they are pretty good and a lot of uh, people are using it. What I am using or used in the past uh, are a Fitbit, a Apple Watch, and the Oura Ring. Uh, I really like the Oura Ring for sleep because it's a pretty, it's less destructive uh, mm -hmm. when you sleep than uh, having the watch on your uh, hand. And uh, it's uh, providing you a, a pretty good information. Also, comparing to the Apple Watch, you don't need to uh, charge it every day. You charge it every five days. Uh, and I think that they have a, a pretty good algorithm. So if you ask me what I like, and again, I'm not trying to advertise anything. I, I really like the O-ring because of all the reasons that I mentioned before. And I think important, you know, we have those six that you mentioned, but just having the data is not enough. Like having the data and then using that data to inform your next steps are really where like the money comes from, so to speak, 
um, just knowing those numbers on their own doesn't necessarily do anything. Um, and knowing what to do Absolutely. is also important. Yeah. Um, all right. How about some, another user question? What are some weight loss strategies that have proven to be effective in the long term? Yeah. So, so th that's a very good question. I will start from the end. For the long term, uh, I don't know on any uh, weight loss strategies that have been uh, shown to be proven for the long term. We are going back to our discussion before. There is no silver bullet and uh, there is no uh, quick. There is yeah. no quick and dirty here. Uh, you need to work on it. I, I can say that uh, my weight is uh, pretty stable in the last time, 20 years, but I'm working hard on it. I'm hoping on the, and we'll discuss it maybe later, I'm hoping on the uh, scale every day and seeing whether I gain weight or lost weight. And if I uh, gain weight, I will try to manage my uh, food consumption that day to not to gain weight again. And if I lost weight, maybe I can uh, have a cheat day today. So I think that uh, um, you need to find the right approach that's right for you. And everyone is different. And you also need to find what is your weak spot. I know that my weak spot is that I like to snack at the evening. Um, so my approach is uh, I'm trying to force myself not to eat after 7 p.m. And then I can remove the, the weak spot that I have. So everyone, I think, need to understand is a weak spot. By the way, Ashley, you have a lot of experience with that, so I would love to hear your uh, comments and your trick uh, uh, later. But I think that uh, what is exciting right now is that we have a, a really new world. So a couple of years ago, a, a new kind of uh, drug, the GLP-1 the agonist, the Saxenda and other, have developed developed. And uh, um, those uh, drugs are really a miracle drug. They were developed for diabetic. But uh, uh, what uh, the researchers observe is that uh, everyone that used the, those drugs, almost everyone, lost around 15% of, the, uh, of their uh, body weight, which is amazing. Yeah. I think that the drawback of that is that um, we don't know yet what happened when you pause using it. And most likely, mm -hmm. if you pause using it and... Uh, you are not uh, uh, trying to maintain your weight, you will gain the weight because every other measure of uh, weight loss, it's happened. So it might be that uh, some uh, obese people will, will need to use the GLP-1 for life, similar to, yeah. I don't know, injecting insulin for a uh, diabetic. But I think that that's, that's amazing because uh, uh, um, we found, uh, or we, I'm saying, I'm saying the scientific community found that... Uh, uh, being obese is not because you are uh, uh, lazy or a bad person or uh, whatever uh, other nickname that a uh, bad nickname that people uh, 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 say about uh, uh, the obese population, but it's there is a real molecular problem that they have, and uh, basically they feel hungry all the time, mm -hmm. and this drug allows them to feel full and then uh, decrease their uh, food consumption. So that's, in my opinion, the star of. Uh, a proven way, but there are a few other like a bariatric, bariatric surgery, which uh, can uh, decrease up to 30% or even more of uh, your weight. Other way is a caloric restriction, and uh, basically you cut the amount of calories that you eat. It's a normal diet. In model organism, actually, caloric restriction has been shown to increase lifespan, so that's even uh, more exciting, at least for me. Intermittent fasting is another way, is uh, basically uh, very popular today is the 8-16, so feed yourself at uh, 8 hours and uh, fast for 16 hours. 
What is important there is you cannot eat uh, 5,000 calories in eight hours and then expect that you lose weight. So you should eat <laughs> normally for eight hours. Basically, uh, that's mean that you will eat a bit less and then uh, uh, you will lose uh, weight. What is nice about that, it's pretty easy. It's one intervention. You come saying, okay, I'm starting to, to eat at uh, 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. or noon time and stop eating, I don't know, at uh, 6 p.m. And then... Uh, that's what you need to do. But again, don't uh, feed yourself too much at the uh, feeding hours. Another point about the intermittent fasting, there is a lot of data that started to come and uh, show that it's better not to eat too late, most likely because of sleep, but also other reasons that we don't understand. So if you are doing a, a intermittent fasting, try to eat dinner or the last meal as early as possible and don't eat dinner at uh, 10 p.m. and just start eating at uh, 2 p.m. That's uh, less efficient than the uh, stop eating at uh, 6 p.m. and start eating at uh, noon time or something like that. So those are the, the points that uh, I have. But uh, Ashley, I would love to hear uh, uh, your comment based on your expertise. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll say is we just recorded a really awesome episode with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky about the GLP-1s. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about that for anyone that's interested in them because it's so new. Um I feel like in, you know, a point that's so important is that you don't just want to focus on weight loss in general. You don't want to lose all your muscle mass. You know, Gail just went through how important VO2 max is as well as grip strength. Those are two things that are, you know, correlated with your muscles and being able to utilize them. Um, so usually if I work with someone that's interested in weight loss, I encourage them to think about instead of, um, taking in less energy, thinking on ways that they can make their body require more energy. In order to lose weight, you have to find a calorie deficit, but you have to be able to sustain a calorie deficit. Um, you know, the stats on weight loss are not very good. And I think it's because most people, when they go about weight loss, it's in very unsustainable ways. You know, they are trying to do a keto diet or they don't eat I don't know, something seven days or six days a week. And then they go wild on that thing when they can have it on the last day. Um, so with everything, you know, even all of these changes that you might want to make based on your DEXA scan or your grip strength or your calcium score, all of those changes that you implement are only going to be successful if they are things that you can sustain um, because you will not maintain any result that you get if you can't maintain the method that you utilize to get there. Um, so some things that I always like to encourage, focusing on increasing your muscle mass. In order to do that, you have to do strength training. So you have to cause some muscle damage. Um, and then you have to eat enough protein to help your body not only maintain your muscle mass, but hopefully, hopefully help it to deposit more, to gain more lean muscle mass. Um, so making sure you're taking in enough protein in addition to doing some strength training. And it can be just 15 minutes twice a week. Um, and then always, always in your back pocket, for most people, the ability to walk is there. So don't underestimate how much your body's going to benefit from just going for a walk. Um, so, you know, instead of trying to calculate and tally all of your foods throughout the day to see if you, you know, have found some sort of deficit, which is hard, um, focus on building that muscle mass, which is going to require your body to utilize more energy to maintain it. Um, as well as, again, walking is always a way that you can um, expend extra energy as well. Um, and if you're not sure how much energy you should be taking in, you know, that's another thing that those DEXA scans do that I think are pretty great. 
They can give you um, your resting metabolic rate. And then based on how active you are, you can see how many additional calories you should be eating. Um, again, that's something that's different for everyone. It's going to look at your lean muscle mass. It's going to take into some uh, into consideration, maybe your age, your height, your weight, your gender. And it's going to be able to spit out roughly uh, a pretty you know accurate compared to some of the other calculations you might have of how much energy you should have per day. And then you're going to add an activity factor. So if you don't exercise, um, you'll be somewhat near your resting metabolic rate, but still probably higher than it. Um, up to if you work out for three hours a day, then we also want to make sure you're taking in enough energy too. Um, so knowing those things, I think, can also be really helpful. Just because someone on the internet eats 1,300 calories doesn't mean that that's what your body needs. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think that uh, all, all of that is uh, are very good points. And I think that uh, it's also the you need to have a balance of the macro and micronutrients. So you mentioned the keto diet that uh, basically you don't have uh, enough carb and I assume that you miss other macro and micronutrients. So it's a... Uh, very important. Uh, at the end of the day, our food is uh, uh, broken down to macro and micronutrient. Macronutrient yep. can be a fat or protein or carbohydrate or fiber, and micronutrient can be, I don't know, magnesium and, uh, and uh, calcium and uh, potassium and uh, vitamin D and B12. So it's very important to have a balance of that, even when you are in diet, because it's uh, if not. Uh, you might lose weight, but you might uh, make an, another problem. So it's uh, very important to be sure that they're all in, in balance. And again, uh, knowledge is the power. So get tested and be sure that everything is in balance. And also try to find uh, what are you feeding and are you feeding a balanced diet. And uh, Ashley, you and me are working now on a, a solution like that at InstaTracker that we can tell you exactly are you consuming enough it will are you consuming enough magnesium are you consuming uh, enough uh, fiber uh, and so on or protein and then again you have the knowledge you know and then you can find okay what should i do in order to yeah so very important to know the macro and micronutrient in total yeah that. weight loss but frail and nutrient deficient is not usually like the goal that we would go for and, and there's some study yeah. and i'm blanking on i can't remember but it looked at individuals that were successful with maintaining their weight loss after bariatric surgery. And on average, most of those people were walking about five miles a day. They ate breakfast and they ate a more low fat, higher carb diet that met their protein needs. And of course, you know, everything is individualized. Um, but it's funny that a lot of that is very different than people that are trying to do the keto diet. And of course, people can be very successful on keto, but they have to be able to maintain that keto diet long term to really be able to reap the benefits of, you know, any weight loss that comes from that. Um, and doing those types of diets where you lose a lot of weight and then regain a lot of weight, typically what we see is people gain more weight than where they originally started. And each time you lose weight, you can lose bone mineral density for women um, as well, which, you know, obviously is not something that's overall going to support your long-term health or your longevity. Um, yeah. All right, Gil, next question. How about NMN versus NR? Which is best? Which is the best um, NAD plus precursor and what should I consume? Yeah, that's a question that uh, I get asked every day. And uh, <laughs> it's an interesting question. So let me try to approach it uh, from a different uh, angle. So I, I just came from uh, the most important uh, scientific uh, conference about uh, longevity called ARDT in uh, Copenhagen, where uh, all the leaders in the aging research uh, spent uh, a, literally a week 
uh, discussing longevity, and I've seen a lot of session about uh, the NAD precursor, namely NMN and NR, and I know that uh, there are uh, uh, two camps, one saying uh, NMN is better and the other uh, is saying NR, and I'm trying actually to attack it from the top and say, do we really need to take them? Are they really beneficial for us? So what uh, I learned at uh, that conference is there are a lot of interesting uh, uh, preliminary results in model organisms that those NA- NAD analogs are, can help those model organisms in uh, health and maybe even in uh, longevity. But unfortunately, until today, there is no real data related to human. So I couldn't find any a significant, a strong data that showed that a, a human that consume NMN or NR can improve his health, longevity, wellness. So what I would recommend uh, our uh, listener or audience to do is uh, to wait uh, consuming them because I'm not sure that there is a benefit for that and maybe there is a harm. And by the way, I'm not consuming them because of that. Another interesting point that uh, uh, um, in a month or so, we are uh, planning to interview one of the leaders in uh, a scientist, actually professor in uh, studying aging that uh, focus on the uh, studies on the NAD analog. And there we will uh, literally deep dive into uh, those NAD analogs and we'll try to provide a, a, a very deep uh, understanding about them. Uh, because we understand that there is a lot of excitement and anxiety and interest uh, about those analogs. But the bottom line, if you will ask me, and again, you don't have to ask me, you can ask others, I wouldn't recommend taking uh, neither of them. Okay, maybe along the same lines with that, another user question is, why are some health benefits not included in the app? For example, NMN, resveratrol, intermediate fasting, or cold showers. Why do we not ask for NAD plus levels? Yeah. Again, a, a good question. And I think that I uh, answered the question about NMN in NAD uh, level. But uh, for the other, for example, for uh, resveratrol, so we are recommending resveratrol only for a subpopulation that have a, a glucose in the level of uh, pre-diabetic or diabetic because we found a peer-reviewed scientific publication that showed that uh, consuming resveratrol uh, for that subpopulation will allow them to decrease their fasting glucose. So what we are doing, it's not like we are looking at a specific uh, supplement like NMN and saying, oh, we have to add it and let's say uh, find an excuse to add it. Instead of that, we are looking at it in a different way. We are kind of saying, okay, if NMN, let's look at everything that published about NMN, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And let's try to develop a sort of a meta-analysis, basically looking at all of that, understand what is the population, what is the size of the study, uh, what are the results, what is the end indication. And then our scientists, looking at all of that, uh, make a decision whether there is a reason to uh, provide recommendation for that. Because we really want you, again, to live better longer. So we don't want to give you a recommendation if it's not a a recommendation that we believe that there is a science on it and a recommendation that we will uh, follow if we receive this recommendation. In the example of the cold shower, 
Uh, our scientific team uh, look into that, and uh, very recently we had uh, a recommendation related to that. So we have recommendation uh, for that. But uh, for other, we haven't seen yet uh, a data that justify adding recommendation. And again, we are trying to be as scientific as possible, and we want you really to live better, longer, and not just selling you NAD or uh, NMN or how. By the way, InstaTracker is not selling any supplement. We are not selling any food and we are not selling your treadmill. We are just providing your recommendation. We're trying to look at your interests and your interests only. So we, we're really trying to be the guardian angel for health for you. So that's why you are not seeing some of them in InstaTracker. And investing your time and money in things that we believe will move the needle. It's probably not dangerous to take a cold shower, but could you be using that five minutes? better doing yeah. something else exactly exactly it's uh you, it's in cold shower it's uh, your time but uh, uh consuming nmn for example we don't know maybe there is a, be, a bad uh, side effect that uh, nobody knows yet so if there is no benefit why to take the risk yeah and there's a lot of work that goes into all of those recommendations it is not just one study that comes out or one video on tiktok that it worked for somebody um, there's a lot of scientific rigor that goes in on the science team to produce only the you know, strongest recommendations that we can. Yeah, and maybe in the future, Ashley, we can have uh, ask me anything about uh, how InstaTracker developed the recommendation. I think that it uh, will be fascinating to our listeners to see how much work and how much time and uh, how rigor it is and uh, how careful we are uh, to really uh, represent you and give you the best uh, recommendation possible. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe a little more detail about all of the types of studies that are out there and why we specifically yeah. look for just certain ones. Um, yeah. Okay, last tip or, or last question here since we end all of our episodes with asking our guests what their top tip for health span is. Do you have one that you or a few maybe that you want to share? Yeah, so as you know, we... I think that we almost crossed the a 50 episode of uh, longevity by design. So we heard a lot of very good tips. But uh, for me, the, the best tip, uh, in my opinion, is uh, basically use uh, uh, insert tracker and uh, have a holistic uh, view of your body. And based on that, receive the, the best recommendation that's good for you, personal for you, and follow them. So it's very hard to give, uh, to provide a cookie cutter or I'm saying uh, uh, sleep more. Yeah, sleep more is important, but uh, maybe for you, you're already sleeping well. So maybe the best tip for you is uh, spend uh, an hour a day in the gym uh, pumping iron. Or uh, mm -hmm. for me, it's uh, I don't know going for for a run. So I think that uh, the, the best tip that I can uh, provide to you use uh, a tool such as InstaTracker to receive the best uh, recommendation that fit for you and uh, follow that. But what is your tip, Ashley? I don't know if I can say one. <laughs> I feel like the more and more we learn about um, exercise and just changes that happen in your muscle cell, like every time I talk about it, it makes me want to go home and like do something active. Um, but I think some of the favorite things that, that I've heard or we've heard from some of our guests are also focusing on community and mental health that you can be the healthiest person in the world. But if you're miserable and have no one to share your life with, it doesn't matter. Um, and just the impacts of how important your overall outlook is managing your anxieties, managing your stress. Um, you know, in addition to utilizing your muscle cells and eating oatmeal, 
I would say that that's an important one that I would definitely point out and think, you know, maybe we don't give enough light to, um, when we're talking about more hard science stuff we can see in studies, those are kind of more softer things related to health span. Yeah, no, I, I think that, uh, that's a, a very good point that, uh, I haven't paid attention before those episodes about the uh, mental health and, uh, mm-hmm. it, it is so important, especially post COVID or during COVID, uh, we lost our uh, society, uh, we lost our friends, we lost our, and we need to get back into that. We yeah. are a social creature, and it's very important for us to spend time with uh, family and friends. And manage your stress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, well, that's it. On our first AMA, we're happy to do more of them, and we look forward to connecting with all of you in the future. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit insidetracker.com/podcast.